Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. Thank you all so much for being here today. And, and I'm honored to have the privilege to preach God's holy word to you and covet your prayers for me, not just today, but uh, any time that I'm preparing and, and then proclaiming the word of God. And I say that also for our preaching team that I have a deep uh, appreciation for and uh, also great respect for uh, who assist me in the ministry of proclaiming the word of God. Lift them up also in your prayers. Before you put your prayer guides away, your, your worship guides away, um, uh, the prayer list, I, I didn't get a chance to get to Tim to uh, ask, ask him to add a name. Under the family and friends section of your prayer list, would you add the name of Lucy Wilson? Lucy Wilson. She is the wife of a fellow pastor. Uh, she fell and broke her leg Wednesday. And, um, and, and I told him we'd be praying for his wife. So Lucy Wilson and I know they would appreciate brothers and sisters in the Lord holding them up in prayer. And, and while you're at it, you can add this name. Uh, there's a young man by the name of Chase. Um, he lives out of state. Uh, he is a former drug abuser. Uh, as a result of the many uh, times of abusing drugs, uh, he suffered uh, uh, almost total disability now. Uh, he uh, was discharged from the assisted living home that he was in, and it's my understanding is homeless. Um, and so he's in a bad way. Uh, sure, I know some people can say, well, he got what he deserved. You know, it's easy to say when we're on this side of the situation. He's still a, a, a person created in the image of God, and he needs help. And I want us to pray for Chase, just that God will bring the right resources to him, and, uh, and, and compassionate people his way to help him uh, through this ordeal. So just want to encourage you as you pray to, to remember those individuals as well. As you open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, where we'll continue in chapter 3, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about the, the idea of confirmation, because we'll be looking at that in one sense in, in our lesson this morning, or the message this morning. You know, it was last fall, I believe, we all witnessed the confirmation hearings of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, which should have been, we all could agree, should have been a very serious-minded and a careful examination of a candidate for the highest judicial office in our whole land. And yet, as you well know, it became an embarrassing demonstration of media hype and political jockeying and shameful attempts at character assassination. And, and it's unfortunate. That's just the nature of sinful man, that we would take something so honored and so uh, uh, serious and, and make a mockery of it in that form. As we open up in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, we're looking at a, an infinitely greater confirmation, if you will. One that, that certainly supersedes even the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice in the United States and beyond. Because we're talking about the confirmation of the King of Glory. We're talking about the confirmation of the promised Messiah. We're talking about the confirmation of, of the Son of God. A, a confirmation that doesn't just apply to it a lifetime or a generation or an era or a century, but for eternity. We've watched as the forerunner to the Son of God John the Baptist, we saw in the earlier verses in chapter 3, where John the Baptist comes on the scene, as was prophesied, and he, in his role, he's proclaiming a message of repentance. 
and, and demanding as evidence of the repentance that it would take place in the hearts of people who seriously consider the presence of sin and the coming of Messiah would demonstrate that inward repentance through outward re, uh, baptism, uh, a baptism, if you will, of repentance. So John is doing his thing. And he's proclaiming and he's preaching these fiery, powerful, uh, just uh, uh, spirit-anointed, heart-wrenching messages that, that so grip the populace, Jews and Gentiles alike, that they are coming in droves to be baptized, believing in their hearts that what he's saying about the Messiah coming is indeed true. And they want to be ready, at least the most part of them anyway. And so John is doing his part. And so as we pick up in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, we're going to see two phases of this process, or two elements of this process of the Messiah's confirmation. And in a very familiar part of Scripture that, that you have read before and, and, and certainly uh, understand. So, so first of all, I want us, as we look at chapter 3 of Luke, and of course we'll, we'll supplement with uh, other gospel uh, accounts to fill in the whole picture. But in Luke, I want you to look with me in, in verse 23. I know our text starts back in verse 21. But I want us to look first at what I call the Messiah's confirmation in birth. I know uh, my wife commented, she was looking at the worship guide and, and said, oh my gosh, says, you're going to be preaching genealogy. We'll be in there forever. Uh, but rest assured, rest assured, I'm not here to demonstrate my fluency in Aramaic and, and Greek and Hebrew names. And thus we won't be walking through all the, the genealogies. But we'll be making reference to that. Because one of the key parts of the confirmation of, of Jesus Christ as, as the indeed Messiah, the promised Messiah, as the Savior, has to do with his lineage, his birth. And so, so we'll, we'll be looking at, at that genealogy that you find listed there beginning in verse 23 down through verse uh, 34, 35, 36 and on down. Okay? So, but we're not going to read through that for the sake of time and plus I don't need to be stumbling over all that, those names. You, you just knock yourself right out with that. But I want you to understand that when we talk about the confirmation of the Messiah based on his birth we see Luke here using the genealogies that, that he presents. And then, of course, we have the genealogy that's presented by Matthew. And, and he's confirming Jesus' unique claim to the throne of David. That is, that is of paramount importance. Because all along, through prophecies and through tradition, the fact is the Messiah has been known to be the descendant of David. And he would, he would be the one who would sit on the throne of David, not for a generation, as David's biological descendants did in, in the past, but he would sit on the throne of David forever. And so we're going to begin first looking at that. You, as you look in chapter 3, in verse 23, beginning in verse 23, we're looking primarily at the the uh, genealogy of Jesus given through his mother, his biological mother, Mary. Now I know that in verse 23 it says, now Jesus himself, so you see in, in Luke's gospel, he begins the genealogy with Jesus and works back, backwards. 
through time. And so he begins, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, which is significant because in Jewish culture, a young man or middle-aged man comes to a position of authority. In other words, this is generally when a, a priest would begin his priesthood service. This is generally when a prophet would be considered eligible to step into the role of a prophet, if you will. And so 30 years old is, is, is when a man is considered ready to be uh, of, of, of uh, a character and uh, to be worthy of responsibility and respect. So at 30 years old, Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, and he's, he begins his ministry. So it says, Jesus, 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, and, and Luke intentionally words it that way. We know, we know from Scripture that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. We know that his father is none other than God Almighty, the Father in heaven. But Luke is simply giving reference here to the fact that most people in the, in the area in his town and in the region, when they talked about Jesus, they supposed him to be the son of Joseph. And so it looks as if Luke is starting the genealogy working backwards through Joseph. But actually, you'll find that as you read this and you compare it to Matthew's genealogy, and I'll explain that in a little bit, but actually what Luke has given us under the name of Joseph are the descendants of, or the ancestors of Mary going backwards as I told you. So this is actually Mary's genealogy. So keep in mind this is Jesus's physical genealogy that is being traced back to confirm that he indeed had a claim to the throne of David. And, and, and one of the things that you'll notice as you look at the beginning of Jesus's uh, of Mary's genealogy as I said it starts with Jesus then Joseph and Mary and it goes back through the Old Testament it, in, in verse 31. It touches on familiar names such as the, uh, uh, Nathan, the son of David. And then, of course, David, the son of Jesse. And, and Jesse, the son of Obed. There in verse 32, uh, you remember uh, Obed, uh, had, he was the son of Boaz. You remember Boaz and Ruth uh, in, in the story. In verse 33, the genealogy continues to go back. It also touches on the descendants uh, of, the, of the sons of uh, Jacob. We talk about Judah there in verse 33. In verse 34, this, Judah was the son of Jacob. Remember, Judah was one of the uh, 12 sons of Jacob. So you have Jacob, who's also the son of Isaac there in verse 34. We're still working backwards. Isaac being the son of Abraham, that son of promise, if you will. But then he continues to go on back in verse 36. He talks about uh, the, um, the Lamech. He talks about uh, Shem, uh, the, the son of Noah, uh, who was the son of Lamech. Uh, then verse 37, see, we're continuing to work on back. The, uh, Lamech was the son of Methuselah, who, by the way, was the oldest living person. Uh, who was the son of Enoch. He can, continues to go on back in, into verse 38. Who then says the son of Enos, the son of Seth. Seth was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. So would have been a brother of Cain and, and uh, Abel had he lived. And then Seth was the son of Adam. And Adam, of course, the son of God. Not, not the son of God. Adam was a created son of God. Adam was created perfect, as you well know. 
prior to his fall into sin. But he was still considered by creation son of God. It's interesting if, as you look at this, Luke begins in verse 23 in making reference to the son of God, Jesus Christ. And he ends up talking about Adam, the created son of God. So he goes all the way from Jesus all the, back, all the way back to Adam. And, and it's interesting because Adam was the, he was the created work of God. That would mean that Jesus created Adam. And yet in verse 23, here is Jesus biologically descending from Adam. So it's almost like a full circle there. But the association, remember, Luke is writing to Gentiles. And he's not just appealing to the Jewish culture, he's appealing to all people. And he's wanting to stress the importance that indeed Jesus Christ is the Messiah for everyone. And everybody, as you well know, descends from Adam and Eve. I mean, that's the way it is. And, and so Jesus, the scope of his Messiahship as presented by Luke, helps us to see that Jesus represents all of humanity. Now, we did mention the fact that it was important to confirm the Messiahship of Jesus. We had to demonstrate that he was a biological descendant of King David. Now, that's important, and let me share with you why. Hold your place there in Luke chapter 2, or 3 rather, and let me just take you back to an episode in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is when the prophet Nathan is speaking to David. And in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, this is what God is saying through Nathan to David. It's, it's, it's a very important time uh, of, of promise by God to David. In verse 12 of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, it means he's passed on, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now as we progress further with this, let me just point out something. God is speaking historically because this is a reference to Solomon, as you'll see in just a minute. But there are things that God will attribute to this descendant of David that not even Solomon or any human being could fulfill. No earthly king can fulfill. So just keep that in mind. Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, which Solomon did. But look what God says. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know that Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. In verse 14, God goes on to say, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of, the, of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So there he's talking about Solomon because we well know that Solomon sinned. Look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the covenant promise given to David that would certainly be attributed to the promised Messiah. And the Messiah had to be a physical descendant of David in order to fulfill that requirement. 
Now, it's interesting, if you were to go to chapter 1 of, of Matthew's gospel, you will find that the lineage of, of, of Jesus is given through Joseph. And, and in that lineage, it's different. Because in Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, in, or actually in, in uh, chap, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 2, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, it talks about, it begins the lineage of, of Joseph beginning with Abraham. It doesn't go all the way back to Adam. And in fact, it comes from Abraham moving forward. Remember, Luke's gospel went backwards. Luke's gospel went all the way back to Adam to make the association with Jesus as Messiah of all of humanity. Matthew's writing to a Jewish congregation. And they are primarily interested in how the Messiah fits into God's plan for the Jews. And in order for the Messiah to be a, uh, the, the, the actual fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham, he would have to be a legal heir to the royal house of David. And so here, using the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we find that Matthew plots Jesus' genealogy from Abraham all the way down through David and, and when you look at the difference between when you get to David in Luke's genealogy and compare it to Matthew's genealogy, you'll see that in Luke's, gospel, Luke's genealogy, he uses there in verse 31 in chapter 3, the son of David by the name of Nathan. So that's, that's through Mary. So Jesus inherited David's genes, if you will, through Mary. Whereas in Matthew's genealogy, y'all hang in there, he is making reference to David's son, Solomon. And we know that Nathan didn't sit on the throne. Solomon sat on the throne. And, and so Joseph, Jesus' legal guardian, and the only way that you could inherit the rights of inheriting the throne, you had to inherit it through the man. Jesus didn't have Joseph's blood running through his system he had Mary's blood. Mary was a biological, physical descendant of David. But Joseph was a legal descendant of David all the way down to, uh, to, to Jesus. And so as if, the God, as if God's gospel has to be so comprehensive that he's saying, look, I want to demonstrate to the world, first to the Jews and even to the Gentiles, that this one Jesus Christ who is coming on the scene and making the claim to be the Son of God and the Son of David and the blessed promised Messiah has indeed confirms his unique claim to the throne of David biologically, physically, and legally as well. But not only that, we see in this, in this genealogy not only does it confirm Jesus' unique claim to the covenant of David, to the throne of David, if you will, but it, com it confirms Jesus' solidarity with all people. As we saw in Joseph's genealogy, it touched beginning with Abraham. And, 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 and Matthew is saying through that genealogy in chapter 1 that the, the Messiah, Jesus, is indeed a descendant of Abraham. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He is, he's qualified 
to step on the scene and to make the claim to be the Messiah because he indeed is a son of Abraham, even biologically. You know, there's something rich in that that we don't want to miss out on either is because we also, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but over in Galatians in chapter 3, yeah, you talk about being sons and daughters of Abraham. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. He said, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith, faith in who? In Jesus Christ. Paul says, every human being, every person, it doesn't matter your ethnic background, your nationality. He says, every person who is of faith in Christ, all are sons of Abraham. So just think about it. Jesus is the only one that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, and everybody from all the way back to, to Adam and all the way up through the current time. Every person that is, that is born again and baptized into the faith is made to be a son of Abraham and are under this glorious covenant that God promised to Abraham. So we see that everybody, every believer, truly is a part of the Abrahamic covenant, but also every person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is a part of Adam's family. And that, of course, would be everyone. Also is under the covenant of the Messiah. So the, the genealogies are there for a unique purpose. For a very important purpose. Because when Jesus came on the scene, both Matthew and Luke said, Sure, look at this background. Take, take, take all the, the historical records and, and look for yourselves and see that this Jesus is not a self-made religious uh, Messiah. He's not a self-made Messiah. He is a God-ordained and God-called uh, covenant-abiding Messiah. He fulfills the requirements of God to be that for us. Why is it important that Jesus be uh, confirmed as being able to identify with all humanity, all people, I'll tell you why. Because in Hebrews, it tells us that in, in, in this covenant agreement, or, or this genealogy rather, going all the way back to Adam, Jesus, though being fully God, his deity, he is also fully man. It, the genealogy that takes him all the way back to Adam tells us clearly that this Messiah that we are called upon to trust in, he is human. He is fully man. He is fully God. In his humanity, he can identify with us. In, in Hebrews, it tells us that we have a great high priest who can identify with us because he has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. So we're not talking about somebody that is only deity and divine and has no way of being able to relate to the daily struggles that we go through. This is a man who is indeed a descendant of Adam and his humanity enables him to be a Messiah, a high priest who can relate to the people. Now I know that you're just itching to read back through these genealogies and pick out favorite names and things and I encourage you to do so. But understand, first point, 
When Jesus showed up on the scene, the Gospels quickly and clearly confirmed that he was indeed the only one who could step into this role as the promised Messiah of, of all the people. Now, having looked at the, the, the genealogy portion, let's go back now to verse 21 in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Because I want you also to see, equally important is the fact that the Messiah was confirmed not only in baptism, or, or in birth, but also in baptism. I want us to see the Messiah's confirmation in baptism. As we, as, as we saw last week, and as I just pointed out, John the Baptist is on the scene. He's baptizing people. First, he's preaching. He's preaching a powerful message of deep conviction in which people realize they are sinners and they are coming to demonstrate their turning from sin in order to be prepared for the coming Messiah. And so John is busy engaging in this, in this baptism there along the Jordan River. So let's look first at Luke's version in Luke chapter 3 verse 21. Now when all the people were baptizing, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom in you I am well pleased. And we'll look at that in just a second. But as I said, to get the full picture, it's really good to, to, to go back to one of the other Gospels that gives a more uh, descriptive account of the same episode. So holding your place in Luke chapter 3, let me invite you to look at the more expanded version of that same story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, at verse 13. So holding your place in Luke 3, jump over to Matthew 3, and I want to invite you, because Matthew fills in the gaps. If you were just to read Luke's version and not have the benefit of examining Matthew's version of this same account, you'd miss a few things. Things that I think are important. So in, in Matthew's version, in, in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, let's look at verse 13. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus' Messiahship is being confirmed even in his baptism. In verse 13, chapter 3 of Matthew, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I, I have need to be baptized by you. And, and are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So in the context in which we're looking there, I want you to see, first of all, Jesus' identification with his redemptive mission. Jesus was coming on a redemptive mission. He was coming to redeem lost humanity. 
from the terrible wrath of God, the awful penalty of God. And so what you see described here is that the, Jesus is coming, and it's important, it, 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 as you look at Matthew's version there in Matthew chapter 3, it's interesting that when Jesus shows up, right away, John recognizes him. You, you may recall from the background, Jesus and John are cousins. Maybe distant cousins. But, but scholars agree there's no indication, there's no record that, that the two men ever came together or had experiences together. Jesus was in the area of Galilee around Nazareth. John, on the other hand, deep in the wilderness along the Jordan River down towards the Dead Sea. There, so, there's, so this would be the first encounter between these two men from all purposes of the historical biblical record. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene there in chapter 3, I want you to see John recognizes the person. Now Jesus is, you know, even in Luke's gospel, it just describes Jesus as coming with the multitude. It's not like he walked up and there's a halo on his head. It's not like he walks up and two angels are escorting him. It's not like he comes up and he has, you know, priestly robes on. He's in the crowd. And there's John in the Jordan River, baptizing one after another after another. <clears throat> and ups up this, this fellow from around Nazareth and says, I want to be baptized too. And immediately, John knows who he is. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, he says that John, in this same account, in John chapter 1, verse 29, this is our team kid memory verse, or one of them, you know, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He knew. And so when Jesus comes up to be baptized, he's, you know, he's probably stammering and stuttering, but, you know, but, 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 but wait a minute. <laughs> Me baptize you? I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the promised Messiah. If, if anything, if there's any baptizing to go on, you need to be baptizing me because John knew that he was a sinner, but he also knew that Jesus as the Son of God was absolutely sinless and did not need the baptism that John was offering. And yet Jesus persisted, as you see, he says, permit it to be so. This is in Matthew's Gospel, verse 15. Permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus knew it was important for him to identify with those whom he was coming to save. You understand? All through Jesus' ministry, he wasn't sitting high up on a throne looking down upon humanity. He was in the midst of humanity. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for sin because he was sinless. But it was important for him to demonstrate to all who would at one point come to put their faith and trust in him. He was identifying with the mission, the redemptive mission for which he was sent into the world by God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And so he saw that clear identification with his baptism with People. Jesus clearly understood the full significance of his own baptism because it connected him with lost sinners. You know, we see that illustrated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Just think about it. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when it says, And he, God, 
made Him, Jesus, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when Jesus stepped into the waters alongside of His cousin John, and He was saying, you must baptize me, because the people, humanity, need to see that I'm the one. I'm the one that when God takes the sins off of them, they're coming on to me. Not only was he doing that to demonstrate to the populace, he was doing that to demonstrate to the Father. I'm all in. I realize that when, as I move forward and participate in this redemptive mission, it's going to cost me my life. It's going to not only cost me my life, it's going to cost me agony like not one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity has yet to experience when I will be separated from you there on the cross and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understood that his very righteousness would then be placed upon wicked, rebellious, lost sinners. And so in coming into the waters, Jesus was identifying with you and He was identifying with me. He's come to save, seeking to save those who are lost. You may remember another passage when in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 28. Is another teen kid memory verse. Teen, teen kids are racking up today. They'll be getting all kinds of teen kid points. Right, Coleman and Jackson? Yeah. But Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus knew that one day He would be coming alongside of every one of us as lost, rebellious, depraved, hell-bound sinners. And offering you and me the opportunity to say, Take the yoke of the penalty of your sin and lay it over on me. We'll walk together. And when it comes to death, and when it comes to the pivotal point of judgment, Jesus says, I will give your soul rest. Eternal rest. In the presence of God in heaven forever and ever as an adopted child of God. So, listen, Jesus came even through baptism, to identify with this redemptive mission that was set before him. But that's not all the story as we finish out. As we look at his confirmation in baptism, as we go back to either gospel, but since we're in the gospel of Luke, let's, let's kind of stay there. Because it talks about when Jesus was being baptized, then verse 21, now when the people were, were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Of course, now we know there's that little exchange going on between John the Baptist and Jesus, but they got that worked out, and Jesus is now being baptized. I believe in Matthew's Gospel, it talks about how when Jesus came up out of the water, and that, that is one of the, the scriptural evidences that we, we offer as to support baptism by immersion. As we think about uh, other accounts in the scriptures, um, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, and he baptized him and talked about him coming up out of the water. So the only way you do that is to be immersed in water. And then you come up out of the water. There's great symbolism in that. 
an identification in that. But, but, but Matthew describes Jesus coming up out of the water. Luke's gospel describes how Jesus was praying. He's communing with the Father. The whole time. I, in fact, I, I think there was unbroken communion between God the Father and God the Son. And, and so Luke says he was praying. Matthew says as he was coming up out of the water. Some phenomenal things happen. I don't know how many people witnessed this. John saw it because in that, chat, that passage I was telling you about there in John chapter 1. John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Son of God, who takes, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, went on to say, And I saw the Spirit of God descending upon him. So John the Baptist clearly saw that and recounts it in, gospel, in the Gospel of John. But, but uh, let's go back to chapter 3 of Luke. Verse 22, or verse 21, and, and, and it says, um, Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. Folks, this is, this is one of the clearest manifestations of the presentation of the Holy Trinity. All three persons simultaneously. I think this is intentionally inserted in the scriptures to refute the heretical teachings of modalism that was going around in that time, in that period, that simply said that God manifested himself as three persons, but not at the same time. Because God was one person at one time, then it would change and become another person of the Trinity another time, and then another person. No, folks, that's not how it works. He's three in one all the time, for eternity, past, present, and eternal future. And at this point here, we see the blessed Holy Trinity. Because we see the Son of God being baptized by John the Baptist. But then we see the heavens are open. Who opens the heavens? It's not Gabriel. It's God. Just like in Acts, I believe in chapter 7 or 8, where Stephen being stoned to death, he talks about how he's looking up and, and heaven is opened up. And he says, look, I see, I see God. And standing at his right hand, I see the Son of God. And for that faithful, dedicated, sacrificial man of God, that martyr for the gospel, God opened heaven and let him look directly into the throne room of God as a reassurance as the stones were crushing him. He says, I saw in the great revelation, the, the vision of the revelation given to John, there was a time when God opened up heaven and told John, come up. And now here at the baptism of the Messiah, as Jesus is coming up out of the water, it says, and heaven was opened. God opens it. This, God is, is, is working. And in verse 22 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him. So we see now the Holy Spirit. Now it's important. I thought this was interesting because for so long, you know, According to Luke's rendition here, it says that the Holy Spirit descended. Here, it says He descended, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Him. And then in Matthew's Gospel, it simply says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And, and so, conservative scholars have said, we sometimes read too much into the description given to us. Because most people, as you think about Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit coming down, say, so how did it come down? Oh, it came down as a, as a dove, a white dove. You can just see it coming down 
flutter, flutter, flutter. You know, but a dove represents peacefulness, gentleness. You know, Jesus says, go out, you know, be a witness, but be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. So, as you look at this, it says that, that, that the Holy Spirit came down in bodily form. That's not to say that it was the bodily form of a dove. We don't know. The Holy Spirit can take on whatever form He wants to. If you look at the consistency of the description given in the Gospels of the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's talking not so much about the form of the Spirit of God, it's talking about the manner of the Spirit of God. God could have sent the Spirit down as a lightning bolt. Kapoom, boom, and water would have flown everywhere, you know, and, and dazzled the crowd. But that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit was to come in a gentle manner to settle upon the Savior because, as I pointed out earlier, the Holy Spirit works a mediating, a mediating ministry in the life of God the Son. The Spirit, from the time Jesus is beginning to mature, Remember, there's, there's a, like in the balance, there's a balance of his deity and his humanity. And the Holy Spirit is like that, that trusted caregiver and, and, and meeting out more and more of, of his divinity, replacing more and more of his humanity. So the Spirit has a ministry in the life of Jesus and he is settling upon Jesus now to abide with him, to guide him, to minister to him, and in a, in a very gentle and caring way. So, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom in you I am well pleased. That's the voice of God the Father. So we've seen the, the manifestation of God the, the Son being baptized. We saw the descent of the Spirit of God in bodily form. And then we've heard the authoritative, audible voice of God the Father. Simultaneous. The Trinity is in action saying to the world, this, this is a big deal. Confirming this man among the thousands who are coming to be baptized by John the Baptist. God is saying through the Son, by the Spirit, with the Father. He is the one. He is the Messiah. Follow Him. Trust Him. Hear Him. Obey Him. And so we have that confirmation given to us by the Holy Trinity. You know, it's interesting too. I think about the baptism that we were blessed to witness last week. Brother Jeffrey and Sister Leanna. And what a marvelous occasion it is, any time. I think we downplay the significance of the ordinance of baptism far too much. Because if we believe what Paul was telling us over there in Galatians chapter 3, that all of us who believe are by faith sons of Abraham, sons of God, and daughters of God, we're children of God. How do we know that? John said it in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become what? Sons, and I insert, daughters of God. 
say, well, what you're trying to say, preacher? Well, take that church ritual that we do that sometimes we set back ho-humly like, all right, we need to get this over with so we can go on. Sometimes we take this, this ritual, and I'm just using that loosely because it is an ordinance of God, when an individual who was lost and walking in sin and they have been chosen by God and drawn by the Spirit of God through the teachings of the Gospel to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they're actually transformed radically, divinely, supernaturally and they're changed from being a child of the darkness and a son of the devil to become a child of the light and a child of God. Folks, don't underestimate when a person steps down into the baptismal pool as a public testimony of the, mar the marvelous miracle that's transformed in their life. Listen, do you think God is standing up there and sitting up there in heaven and looking kind of ho-humly up on that? I believe if we were tuned in with spiritual ears, we would hear the voice of God saying, as that individual is raised up out of the water, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. It's a glorious thing to be identified with the wonderful promised Messiah, the Son of God, the King of glory, the sovereign ruler of the universe, the Savior of all who believe. It's a glorious thing. And the people were being introduced to the promised Messiah. And he was being confirmed by his genealogy, his birth. He was being confirmed in his very baptism.